Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for what you tell us about yourself. Thank you that when you came, Jesus, you didn't just give us another list of rules to order our life by. You showed us who you were and who your Father is, which is what our souls most deeply need. By the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, would you help us to taste the goodness of what you reveal to us? That we would understand it and love it. And that our souls would be bowed down in happy, humble worship to you. Please be with us this morning. We ask it through the grace of Jesus and for his name. Amen. We're touching on deep mysteries again this morning. The Gospel of John takes us maybe as deep as any book in the Bible into who God is, not just what he does, but who he is. We're going deeper this morning into the relationship that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. And Jesus wants us to go there for a very practical purpose. He wants you to feel safe with him. That's why he tells us what his relationship with the Father is like. He wants you to feel safe with him. Now what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through these verses. That's what we're going to do with most of our time. We'll walk through this passage to try to get our hands around what's happening here. And then, near the end, we're going to talk about what Jesus means when he talks about his oneness, him being one with the Father, and why it matters. So that's what we're going to do. So what's happening here? What's going on? Just walk through the passage. If you remember, in, in John chapter 9, the Jews had decided... That if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, 
So the promised Savior, King of Israel, if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, that person would be kicked out of the synagogue. Do you remember that? And they do it. They kick a man out who had been healed of blindness. So in last week's text, which Luke preached in verse 24, when they ask Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Are they genuinely curious as to who he is? No. They've already decided. They've made up their minds. If anyone says, if anyone dares to say, that man is the Christ, they cannot worship with us anymore. They've made up their minds. When they ask Jesus, come on, Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? They don't really want to know. This is a trap. He doesn't directly answer their question. If you remember from Luke's sermon last week, Jesus says, I've told you, and you don't believe me. But he does answer them, and he tells them much more than they asked. Are you the Christ? I and the Father are one. They want to kill him immediately. There's no trial. They're picking up stones to kill him. You see that in verse 31? They picked up stones again to stone him. And you remember in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus had spoken to them and he'd said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has always existed, even before Abraham, your father. They picked up stones to kill him then. That was the first time. They know he was claiming to be the God of Israel. And they know he's doing the same thing in chapter 10 here. And that's why they want to kill him. So Jesus asked these men with stones in their hands. Just imagine how tense this is. Can you imagine giving a sermon while the men who are standing around you are, are taking steps a little closer with rocks in their hand to kill you with? And he says, verse 31, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So Jesus wants them to hit pause for a second and think about the works he's done. Let's just go through the Gospel of John and the public works that Jesus has done. He wants them to think about this. I turned water into wine to show my overflowing provision for my people. Are you going to kill me for that? I healed a boy who was on the edge of death because his father pleaded with me to save his life. And from a town away, miles away, I spoke a word and healed that boy. Do I deserve to die for that? I gave a man who could not move for 38 years the use of his arms and legs. Should I be stoned for that? I fed 5,000 people, at least, who could not provide for themselves. 
Should I die for that reason? I gave sight to a beggar who had never seen anything. Is that why you want to kill me? Which of these wonderful things should Jesus die for? Jesus wants the Pharisees, and he wants you, the reader of the gospel, or hearing my voice right now, to think about the wonderful things that Jesus does. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's providing for people. He's helping people in loving, merciful, powerful, generous ways. Everywhere he goes, it's the kind of person Jesus is. But the Pharisees are blind to it. They don't see who he is through the things he's doing. So they respond, this is verse 33, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Here's the irony. We've read John 1, verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This is not a man who is making himself God. This is God who has made himself a man to save us. Jesus Christ is not physically in this room right now, but he is by the Spirit. And you must decide, is Jesus a man who made himself out to be God? Is Jesus an accomplished liar who fooled people into thinking he was God to take advantage of them? You look at this man's life, is that who he is? Or is this God who made himself man to save us? You can see what he's like if you have eyes to see. The Pharisees are unwilling to see it. They don't want to see what he's like. And we'll talk about why that is in a minute. They claim, or they say, you claim to be God. That's blasphemy. And what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is when you're showing great dishonor to God by speaking falsely about him. So the honor of God is at stake. That's what blasphemy is about. God's honor is at stake in what you're saying. You're dishonoring God. Do the Jews in chapter 10 care about God's honor? No. We know this because in the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 48, the leaders of the Jews are going to get together and they're going to say this, we've got to get rid of Jesus or everyone will believe in him. And they don't say, and God will be really dishonored if that happens. That's not what they're thinking about. They say, we've got to get rid of Jesus or everyone will believe in him. And if that happens, the Romans are going to take away our place. That's what they're worried about. They're worried about their power, their honor, not God's honor. 
That's the irony. They are charging Jesus with dishonoring God with the things he's saying. They don't care about God's honor. They care about theirs. And so they're trying to trap him in a theological debate. Now this is the difference between a godly debate about the Bible and an ungodly debate about the Bible. A godly debate about who God is and about theology is concerned most deeply with God's honor and loving people. That's at the heart of it. That's why you want to engage in a debate. I I care that God is honored in what we're talking about, and I care that people understand it rightly so they can know him and trust him. An ungodly debate about theology is all about winning a fight and the pleasure of being right. So let that be a warning to us. We should care deeply about theology. We should care very deeply about what this book says. Because we care about the honor of God. So we should, always gently, always self-controlled, sometimes passionately debate the meaning of this book for the sake of his name. But zeal, passion to fight over religious things is not a sure sign of your love for God. It's not. It's not. Just check yourself. I've got to check myself on this. We see people who are zealous to fight, to debate, and we think, man, they must really love God. It's not a sure sign. They may just really love being right. They might like an argument because it makes them feel good. If you're puffing yourself up, if you're using God to do that, at the root is unbelief and pride. So let it not be us. Would we be consumed with a passion for the honor of Christ's name? Let the Pharisees be a warning to us that we would want to honor him and we'd want others to find life in him. These men are not on a quest for truth. They're on a quest to protect and honor themselves. And they see Jesus as a threat to that. They want to trap him. And that's why they care about blasphemy. And so, what Jesus does next is to expose the shallowness of their position. It's not deep at all. They're mad about the fact that he's calling himself the son of God, but they're willfully ignoring the fact that he's doing the works of God. He's going to point that out to them. He's about to say, you guys have a problem with the word God. And what he's about to do in verses 34 through 36 is he's going to push that to the side. He's going to say, the word God is not going to settle this. You need to look at what I do to figure out who I really am. Look at verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's a quote from Psalm 82, which Malloy read for us, and explained that God here is calling the Israelites who received the law gods. Lowercase g. But he's calling them gods. These are people. And Jesus continues in verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, 
Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So Jesus is saying, the word God doesn't make me a blasphemer. Your assessment of me is shallow. I've been consecrated and sent by the Father. Is the word God inappropriate for me? Just read your Bible, Jews. The word God is applied to people, so the word alone isn't going to tell you who I am. If you really want to know who I am, this is where he's going to go. Look at what I'm doing. That's what will tell you who I am. Now, just a note for you. There, there are people who call themselves Christians, but are not, who use this passage right here to say, look, look, Jesus is calling people gods. So Jesus, when he calls himself God, he doesn't really mean that he's God, God. He's saying he's a person too. That is most certainly not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying if the word God can be applied to people, it's not going, and the one true God, the word God is not going to settle this debate. You need to look at what I do, and the conclusion will be, yes, he is the one true God. Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. When Jesus says, believe the works, I think he's mostly talking about his miraculous works. Now, in the book of John, the word works can mean lots of different things. It doesn't always mean miracles. But I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the miracles, the wonders that he's done. And he's saying, those are going to show you that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. At the end of this gospel, in John 21, verse 25, John's going to tell us Jesus did a whole lot more than he, than he wrote about. This is what he says. There are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record many more works that Jesus did, always providing, freeing people from oppression to demons, healing people, raising the dead, and he's doing the works of his father. That's what he told us in John chapter 5. My father gave these works to me to do, to show you who I am. And they are unparalleled in the history of the world, the wonders that Jesus did. Now, John chapter 14, verse 12, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, Jesus says, greater works than I do, will you do? And some people think that means that we're going to do more miracles than Jesus and more spectacular miracles than him. I don't think that's what he's talking about. The apostles themselves point out the fact that Jesus' ministry was unique. Listen to what Peter says. 
Peter's, Peter's trying to let people know, look, you, you saw the miracles that he did. There's never been anyone like this. And this is God's way of saying, this is my son. This is Acts 2, 22. Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. So that's how God the Father pointed out to the world, this one's unique. There's never been anybody like this, unparalleled in the history of the world. And Jesus is telling the Jews, the works I'm doing, look at them. Just look. They've been given to me to show. To show what? That I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. We see the power of the Father at work in Jesus. Powerful wonders everywhere he goes. And we see the goodness of the Father in Jesus in the kinds of miracles he does. Jesus and the Father live in each other. This, that's, that's where this whole passage is going. It's where this whole conversation is going. Jesus wants us to see through his works that he's in the Father and the Father is in him. He's helping us understand verse 30. I and the Father are one. So let's, let's talk about that now. Let's talk about their oneness. What it means that God, the Son, and the Father are one. We know that when Jesus says he and the Father are one, he doesn't mean they're the same person. That's clear in verse 38. The Father's in me, I'm in the Father. They are two separate persons, but they are always together. Always. Wherever the Father is, the Son is always there, fully. Wherever the Son is, the Father is always there completely. So is the Spirit. We're going to see that in later chapters. But get this. Wherever the Father is, the Son is always fully in Him. And so is the Spirit. Wherever the Son is, Always, the Father is fully in him, and so is the Spirit. And wherever the Holy Spirit is, the Father is fully in him, and the Son is fully there as well. They are not the same person, but because they are always completely filling one another, they are one God, not three separate gods. You cannot have any one of them without the three. Now, this is deep theology, but I want you to think carefully with me. This is important. Jesus thinks it's important. Essential. That means you can't take this away from who God is. Essential to the godness of God is that all three are always present with each other. 
That's essential to what it means to be God. Which is why when people say, Christians believe in three gods, it doesn't work. Essential to what it means to be God is that all three are fully there in each person or none of them is there. Are you following me? So, so if you were to say, okay, I just, I want the Father. Show me the Father and take Jesus and the Spirit out. There's no such thing. You get that? I want to see Jesus, but take the Father away. There is no such thing. Essential to each person is that the other two are always there. The very first sentence of this book, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son and the Father are one because the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son always. Why does that matter? Why is Jesus telling us this? He obviously thinks it's important for us to understand. So why? I'm going to list four things. I'm guessing you could go on forever and ever on a list of reasons this is important. But we've got four. Here's the first reason it matters that the Son is always in the Father and the Father is always in the Son. Reason one is because it means that Jesus can fully reveal the Father to you. When you look at Jesus and who he is, you are not getting a distorted picture of God. You're not getting a partial picture of God. You're getting the very best picture of God. Is God just? Is he a God of justice? How just is he? Look at Jesus. On the cross, taking the wrath of God for sin. That's what justice is for sin. If you look at the cross, that's what sin deserves. And he's taking it. You want to know how just God is? The best view is looking at Jesus. Is God merciful? How merciful? Look at Jesus. That wrath he was taking on the cross was not for his sin. It was for our sin because he loves us. That's the best view you're going to get of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Is God kind? How kind? Look at Jesus. I was pondering this week, does Jesus ever turn anyone away who comes to him for help? He doesn't. No, Jesus is not going to give us everything we want. But he will hear us and give us what's best. I heard someone say yesterday, I haven't verified that this is true, it seems right to me, that about half of Jesus' works, his miracles, were interruptions. He was going somewhere else. He was trying to do something else, and he was interrupted. And he never 
anyone away. How kind is God? Look at Jesus. How patient is he? How patient is Jesus Christ? God, thank you for letting us see the disciples for three years with Jesus. A lot of people joke about Peter. I love Peter, not because of how great he was or how funny he was, but because he denied Jesus three times. He said, no, I don't know that man for three years. And, and Jesus prayed for him and brought him back. Paul killed Christians and Jesus sought him out, saved him so that you and I might know God is patient. Look at Jesus if you want the best view of God. Here's the second reason it matters that the Father's in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Because both, or here's what it means for you, it means both are deserving of worship. If the Father's in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father, as one God, you should worship them. Jesus is worthy of worship and trust and admiration. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. Bowing down to the Father, bowing down to the Son. That's why it's appropriate for us in our worship gatherings to sing to Jesus and to the Father. They're worthy of worship. Here's the point Jesus makes more often to the Pharisees. If you don't worship Jesus, you don't worship God. If you say you're worshiping God, but you aren't worshiping Jesus too, who is in the Father, then you're not worshiping the Father. Jesus is just pointing this out over and over and over again. The Father always has the Son in him. The people of this nation and the people of the nations need to know that. They cannot worship. They can't worship without coming through Jesus Christ. And we have good news. The Son will embrace everyone who comes to him. I hope that gets you excited to share what we have. Here's the third thing it means. The Father's in the Son, the Son's in the Father. It means that the Father and Son are united in their purposes. Now these last two, we're really getting back to our passage. They are united in every desire... Father and the Son, but in particular, Jesus wants you to see that they are united in their desire to save you, to keep you, and to give you eternal life. Do you remember two weeks ago, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. For this reason, the Father loved me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. The Father loves that Jesus is dying to forgive sinners like you and me. Their desires are together. He loves it. It's what he wants, the Father and the Son. He sent him to do it. They're united to save and to keep you saved and to raise you up to eternal life. Listen to John 6, 39 and 40. Jesus is telling telling us what his Father desires. This is the will of him who sent me, 
Father, that I should lose nothing of what he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Not, not only are the Son and the Father both united in their passionate desire to forgive, but they're united in their desire to keep you trusting until the end when Jesus raises you up to everlasting life. Jesus says, come to me. It's his way of saying, believe in me. Come to me. And he promises to never cast you out. This, this is so practical for my soul, for anyone you might share this news with. Jesus' invitation is such that if anyone, anyone, anyone comes to him, he will never not want them there. You will never come to Jesus and have Jesus with open arms and find out the Father doesn't want you there. They are united in their desire to save. And that's really good news. And finally, this is related. Jesus and his Father are united in their power to make sure that you're saved. That you're kept. And that you receive eternal life. And Luke pointed this out last week. It's not just enough that they want it. <laughs> they will do it. We're coming full circle. Because you, if you ask, why are we even talking about this? Why are we talking about the oneness of the Father and the Son? Why does Jesus bring this up? He's bringing it up, according to our passage, in order to convince your fearful soul and my fearful soul that he won't let us be lost. Listen to verses 28. So I'm going back into last week just to show the connection with this week. I'm going to read verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. Do you believe that? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus wants you to know that he and his Father are completely on the same page. There is no space between them in their desire to save you, keep you, give you eternal life, or their ability to do it. If you come to Jesus for your sins to be forgiven and to give you new life, you will be raised from the dead. He and his Father are one and are committed and able to do it. Christians, fight your fear with this. I know that there are very few 
rare Christians who don't ever struggle with feeling like maybe I'm not saved or maybe I'm not going to make it. But I'm not one of them. For my own soul, I need this. In all likelihood, at some point, you're going to go, what if, what if I do go to hell? What if he's not going to save me? In moments like that, looking inside at your feelings for assurance isn't going to get you anywhere. What you have to do in moments like that is take yourself by the hand with a promise from the unchanging nature of God and tell yourself until you believe it, he will not let you go. He won't do it. I have to do this for my soul, and you will have to do it to your own soul in all likelihood someday. Grab yourself by the hand and say, he promises no one will snatch me out of his hand. And that's what will keep you. He's able and committed. He doesn't lose sheep. That's what this week's passage, it's what last week's passage were about. It's why he tells us that he and his father are one. So come to Jesus. I'm talking to everyone in this room now. Jesus wants you to hear how safe you can be in him. His works show you that the father's in him that he is in the Father. If you're not sure that you've come to Jesus, the real question for you is, will you embrace him now? Because if you do, he promises, he will never turn you away, and he will keep you to the end. Because he and his Father are one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your only son. So that we might know what you are really like. So that we might see your heart in your son through the works he's done. So that we might have confidence that Father... You will not let us go. Thank you, Jesus, for securing us, securing forgiveness for us, securing forgiveness and not just a probability that we would make it to the end, but certainty. As all who come to you, you will raise up. I pray that you would help our weak, needy, fearful souls to find shelter and safety with you, the shepherd. That we would be able to say with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your promises, God, are our comfort and our sword.
so that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. O work in us by the Spirit, triune God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.